0: All right, we got Paul Jebley in the house. Glad to be here. Thanks welcome, for having wel- me. Welcome, Paul. Paul uh, Paul thought he was coming over for lunch, and uh, little did he know, we uh, pulled him into the conference room to make him do a, do a podcast with us. With a glass of water, may I With a glass of water. It's, it's, it's not quite a bottle of scotch. Not even not even instant noodles. We, we didn't even give him noodles. We gave him a, a glass of water, and now we're going to get some free legal advice. Oh. Uh, before we started, Paul, we were talking about repossessions, yes, which indeed. is your specialty. Is Correct. it fair to say that's a specialty or it's I a specialty?
1: I, I've certainly had more than my fair share of, of uh, repossessions uh, on behalf of banks uh, and also uh, defending repossession actions on behalf of owners as well. So I've gotten to see both sides.
0: So what is going on in the repossession situation in Asia?
1: Well, in terms of actual... Uh, repossessions quite uh not a lot uh however in terms of all the things that would, you would expect to see prior to repossessions i would say a, a significant amount i think there's a lot of uh, distress transactions in the market uh, i'm obviously not going to speak about any specifics but we are uh, the bulk of my practice is typically uh, assisting individuals when they purchase and finance aircraft. Uh, we've been quite busy of late also assisting financial institutions who have had transactions that have gone for various reasons wrong, uh, ver- whether it's through the restructure stage, whether it's through the workout stage, and ultimately um, whether it's through actual enforcement. But the number of aircraft that have been actually repossessed at this moment is quite low because it takes so much to, to, to get to that point.
0: And within Asia, so if I look at China, Singapore, and the Philippines, three completely different repossession scenarios.
1: Very different. Uh, once you get down to the actual act of taking back an aircraft, the local dynamics and the jurisdictional dynamics are absolutely inescapable. And each of these countries have their own bodies of law. They have their own regulatory regimes. They ha- Frankly, they have their own political landscape uh, as, as well. Uh, so if you step Far, uh, far enough back, uh, the legal work and the technical work all looks the same. But the the devil is always
0: in in the details. And what what's the bigger issue? Is it the actual registration, or is it the country of operation? The the getting the
1: aircraft deregistered. So unless you're going to repossess an aircraft and somehow remarket it to go back onto the same registry, which is which is extremely rare, uh, then you're going to have to at some point deal with the act of getting the aircraft deregistered and exported from that home country. Uh, We deal a lot in in, uh, the repossession space in the commercial space. And what I will say uh, from experience is that it's actually much more straightforward to repossess a commercial aircraft than it is a business aircraft, Uh, particularly when you're dealing with aircraft that are uh, owned or formerly owned by uh, politically uh, politically exposed individuals or politically connected. Individuals,
0: But as long as some, like if, if a jet's on the Reg, does it then really matter which country it's in?
1: Uh, certainly for aircraft that are N-registered through through uh, trust structures, it's it's a lot easier to get access to the aircraft itself. Uh, but then you have to remember, you can't get around the physical location of the aircraft. So if you have an N-registered aircraft that's located in, it's uh, just for pure example myanmar uh, you you're, you're still going to have to deal with the local authorities uh, to that end we we publish uh every year we publish a, a a multi-jurisdictional guide to repossessions i think we're up to 125 countries around the world where we look at all the different factors that go into ease of repossessability uh, and, and certainly some countries are much more repossession friendly than than others and the united states for for various obvious reasons ranks quite highly whereas a number of countries in, in this region rank fairly low
0: and what's your view of china at the moment
1: uh it's it's exceedingly difficult and it always has been to repossess aircraft in china uh in a um in in a, in a uh, disputed manner uh, there certainly have been instances of aircraft that have been handed back. I've, I've participated in a number of those, uh, where you look at instances of, of aircraft that have um, been subject to disputed enforcement. It gets exceedingly difficult. Uh, put it this way: there are much, much friendlier jurisdictions in, in the world to repossess aircraft from as a as a foreign uh, financier.
0: Yeah, I mean, we've seen a lot. I mean. I guess I would have thought that there would have been a lot more repossession enforcement in China, just given what's going on economically and politically. But what we've seen is just more forced selling where the lessor just says, Hey, you have to sell. And that's how we're going to clean this up rather than I'm taking back the aircraft.
1: Absolutely. We have seen an incredible amount of forced selling out of, out of China. The thing about, uh, the domestic Chinese market that you have to keep in mind is the, the interconnectivity of the entire ecosystem. Um, there, there's a lot of face involved. There's a lot of uh, political and personal and business relationships involved. Uh, and so I would say it is extraordinarily rare to have a disputed repossession and sale in, in, in China, whether it's uh, especially where it's, where it's between domestic parties. I would say the majority of the trading activity that we've done in the past year has been squarely in, in the realm of uh, um, directed sales. Let's say,
0: yeah, no, I uh, I think that's true. I think that the number of times we've heard about a sale or potential sale um, where it turns out you know there's a there's an underwater lease or there's some some dispute there behind it is is significant outside of China. Anything similar? Indonesia, um, other difficult markets, or China is really the hardest.
1: Certainly, in Asia at, at the moment, I would say the vast majority of distress activity is 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 coming out of China, simply because it also happens to have the lion's share of of, of aircraft um, and when I compare that to other parts of the world, uh, I'm also active doing transactions in the United States, Africa, the Middle East, Europe. I, I would say it's it's probably the most active market in the world right now for distressed selling.
0: So tell me about the mechanics of repossession. At what point do you normally get involved?
1: Uh, as external counsel, I normally get involved uh, after it's too late. Uh, I am typically surprised. Uh, by the amount of time that has that has passed uh, since the initial default, and certainly it doesn't serve many people's service, uh, sorry, purposes to be um, overly open about about these types of things. No one wants to air their their dirty laundry, and there there tends to be a, a hesitancy to 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 engage external counsel. Um, but usually, when I get involved, it is uh, go time. It, the the loan's been underwater for
0: a year. So the, the <laughs> bank's exhausted its internal yeah. capability and they've just said, okay, you know, now it's
1: Yeah, that's that that's correct. And it, it really is at that point a a debt recovery mission. Uh and uh, you know very often um uh, like more often than, than you would think there uh there is still outstanding indebtedness after the aircraft's been repossessed, after it's been remarketed, after it's it's been sold. And so a good part of what I do um, for my work on behalf of financial institutions, which again, I really only work for banks now when it's distress situations, is uh, enforcement of guarantees, uh, asset tracing, uh, and, and your real sort of traditional debt recovery type type work, which uh, I have to say, it, it suits me well. I, I enjoy it.
0: And how much of it is like a TV show where you have to fly in somewhere Lock down the aircraft, get the keys, and actually organize it to be flown out.
1: I I have had instances where where there was there a camera crew following me. It probably made for a good you know ten minutes of a of a TV show. Most of the rest of it, to be honest with you, happens just behind a desk. Um, but the the debt recovery part is 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 interesting. Uh, that's where the investigators become involved. Uh and and they have all types of ways and means to 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 locate assets. Uh because nobody but by and by the way, by that point the relationship is over. Uh and so you have to keep in mind that uh people try to maintain the relationship for as long as possible. And to be honest with you, and I have been on both sides of this, I have had clients that have made fortunes, lost fortunes, and made fortunes again. And that's important to keep in mind. Uh and certainly whenever I'm acting for a financial institution doing debt recovery i still approach it uh with a lot of respect but there's a lot that goes on
0: sort of behind behind the scenes and what's the typical time frame from the moment you get called until it gets settled
1: until all outstanding indebtedness is settled yeah anywhere between or the aircraft's repossessed and sold or if there is a high likelihood that the individual is is motivated to do a discrete workout, then one to three months. Uh, otherwise, you're looking at one to three years
0: to get actually to take possession of the aircraft. Uh,
1: to take possession of the aircraft is not that difficult. You, you can you can physically possess an aircraft with, within a month. Uh, the 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 act of then uh, selling the aircraft and 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 deregistering and exporting it uh can but take if there's an aircraft
0: sitting on the ground somewhere in Asia and you have good t- I mean you have good contracts and everything like that you can you can get title to the aircraft and you've
1: thought through your strategy in advance and and it's executed particularly where the borrower where the or the owner mm-hmm. uh consents or at least uh doesn't intentionally seek to frustrate the process and if the owner does seek to frustrate- you're, you're you're in court for for a prolonged period and while you're in court if you're unlucky the asset is sitting somewhere corroding and deteriorating uh, and i've certainly dealt with situations like that um i've i've repossessed aircraft in hong kong uh like nigeria and the speed is 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 everything. So by the time that that decision is taken, it's it's it should be in the blink of an eye.
0: I imagine Hong Kong is a reasonable place to get that done. You you would have been surprised. Uh, it is it is now, um,
1: uh, thanks to the work of uh, you know some 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 lawyers like myself. Uh, but it it, uh, it wasn't always as as straightforward as it as it should have
0: been. Um, let's take a quick break like, so then somebody uh, in China who wants to acquire an aircraft and wants financing are the financiers then pushing them to register it offshore and keep it in Hong Kong or register at Cayman's uh, and not be reg is you know is that something that the lessors are really demanding it, it certainly depends uh, who
1: you're talking about if you're talking about uh chinese financiers they're, they're certainly quite comfortable and confident uh with uh, chinese jurisdictional or, risk or they were um and so when it comes to the foreign uh financiers i would say there's a, a, a significant hesitation to finance be registered aircraft uh, and, and and this has gone back many years uh, i would say five to seven years ago there was a big movement to get foreign financiers comfortable with B-registered aircraft uh, and certainly a couple of them did, but then they had an extremely difficult time competing with with the domestic financiers. Not just on margin by the way, also on the mode of transacting and the amount of financial transparency that that's required. You're, you're really dealing into almost completely uh, distinctive uh, business cultures in in that sense. Are
0: you talking diligence or KYC or both?
1: Both uh, the the amount of financial disclosure that one needs to give to a non Chinese lesser is, without exception, in my experience, significantly more. Uh, but that's for for various reasons. I I think the uh, the differing business cultures is what it comes down to.
0: Yeah. No, I think the culture part of it's important. I mean, we see a lot of Chinese clients who balk at the disclosures, not, not that they can't do it or that there's anything wrong. They just, they haven't come from a place where those kind of demands are, are asked. And oftentimes they just look at it and think it's silly. You know, why are you asking me? I mean, clearly I have the money, you know, what, what do you care? You know, look at my watch. <laughs> and to be honest with you, a lot of times
1: that information is just not readily available because they they haven't had to produce it previously and so you very often end up with with a significant disconnect
0: um i just i want to come back to kyc for a minute something that we hear a lot from bankers at least bankers out here in asia uh, is that getting their own bank to do a deal is harder than getting clients uh, and while there's a lot of competition for clients in general, even when they have a legitimate a client, a good client, high net worth client, just getting it through their own bank from a KYC perspective is a Herculean effort. Is it the same from the law firm side? I mean, are you going through those same procedures?
1: We, we certainly have uh, heightened KYC requirements relative to what we were required to undertake uh, in, in years past. Uh, however for our firm we we do not we do not touch anyone's money uh, no money passes through our firm uh, and we adhere very strictly to all of our ethical standards so uh, our kyc requirements are significantly lower than than for example a banks uh, what we won't do for example uh, we will not act as a kyc intermediary ever uh, the reason for that is because we are very well aware of the heightened sensitivity to the accuracy of KYC and and the reliance that that may be inadvertently placed on a law firm's reputation if that KYC comes through a law firm. So it's a it's it's a it's a much much different world in that regard than it was in uh, in in the distant past. I would
0: say. And you were saying before that a lot of banks just won't even go near certain deals, just even just from a KYC perspective. It doesn't matter what the, what the valuations are what the net worths are they just it's just a KYC issue.
1: KYC is is mission critical today whereas if i had said the words KYC is mission critical let's say 5 years ago I probably would have been laughed at but it, it is absolutely critical today.
0: Just given everything we've said how important is it now to finance like how important is the management company to financiers right now? I, I'd source. say
1: it has never been more important to have a solid, reputable, capable, credible, honest management company.
0: And is and is that to protect the value of the aircraft or is it to make sure that you can get the aircraft out and you have a party that will work with you? What, what's the... Both. Uh,
1: you know, the people forget that the, the tripartite agreement, the tripartite yeah, relationship between uh, lender, uh, borrower... And, and manager that really wasn't a feature all that long ago, uh, particularly in Asia. They've only been around for I would say the better part of six seven years, and they've certainly um, become more and more accepted. But if you go beyond that, there were there were transactions where management companies just simply refused. Um, now we're starting to see many instances where those contractual relationships uh, between lender and manager and borrower are are being tested. Uh, very often. With certain managers, those th- those contracts just weren't the, worth the paper that, that, that they were written on. Um, however, in other instances, I've seen them be the
0: saving grace of-, of, uh, of- and Do you mean because the management company and the end user had a relationship that superseded-
1: it it's certainly
0: not unheard of
1: particularly with the smaller management companies where the principal of the management company had a relationship with the principal owner of that aircraft which is really the only reason why that aircraft was with that manager in the first place and when stuff hit the fan uh loyalties you know um, business and personal and political loyalties uh superseded contractual obligations i've seen that number of times
0: so those tripartite agreements you're saying they can't be enforced or just getting them enforced is a pain?
1: They're, they're certainly enforceable. However, particularly when you're talking about some of the Chinese operators, people lost sight of the fact that those contracts, which the forms that were pulled off of some shelf in their English or New York law-governed contracts, are very difficult to enforce in China, particularly where there wasn't uh um, arbitration built into it as well, it's exceedingly difficult to enforce a foreign judgment in China. Much easier to enforce a foreign arbitral award, but uh, people just didn't think that far.
0: But so then what what can a lessor or a financier do other than the tripartite agreement? I mean, just given the fact that an aircraft, you know, it's, it's moving around, it could be in any jurisdiction at any time. What else can they do to protect themselves in advance?
1: Uh, monitor your client's uh, financial position.
0: Uh, very closely.
1: Um, Very often, the financiers have, in my experience, been amongst the last to know. Uh, It's particularly telling when uh, a lender, sorry, when a borrower defaults on a loan and the financier picks up the phone for likely the first time in six months, if not longer, to the management company. And the management company says, oh, yes, well, we haven't been paid in six months or a year, by the way. And that's despite the fact that in that tripartite agreement, there's a clear provision that requires ongoing reporting, particularly when there's uh, payment defaults. Okay.
0: No, that's, that's, this is all good stuff, Paul. Thank you. uh, This is great free legal advice. It
1: is, it is. It's not legal (laughs) advice at all. uh, (laughs) Real world, uh, real world advice. experience, yeah.
0: Too easy to always go down the the China rabbit hole, and we forget that there's a whole other whole other uh, group of countries out there. So, if we just step outside of China for a second, look at the rest of Asia. What's the financing market look like? You see a lot of deal flow. Is it active? Is it quiet? I would say on the financing part, it's the
1: most quiet that it's been in my experience in uh, the past decade. Uh, and, that, and that's for various reasons. Uh, we have a number of individual clients and corporates that, that are purchasing new and used aircraft and they are not even asking about financing. Uh,
0: so because they're rolling over finance here or it's just all
1: cash or? Because they are all cash. Um, and what I'm finding now is that the other, uh, whatever the historic number was, let's call it 70%. Of, of buyers that, that had historically purchased, and yes, they could afford cash, but they also wanted to uh, leverage uh, or uh, obtain back leveraging for their acquisition. Uh, they just, in my uh, experience at the moment, they're not active buyers. So the most active buyers that I'm seeing are people that uh, do not want to bother with the financing at all at the moment. And I think if you speak with most of the bankers, it's probably the the slowest financing uh period that, that that they've experienced in a long time um you know there's a robert frost quote uh that says uh, a, a bank is a place where they lend you an umbrella in fair weather and ask for it back when it begins to rain uh so and, and i think that's that's a pretty timeless quote and and, and and you're seeing it now i think a lot of banks are uh claiming that they're wide open for business jet business when in reality uh, for various reasons, including internal hurdles, they they simply are not. And, and everyone says it's a flight to quality. Um, the phrase flight to quality in my experience, uh, first of all, I haven't heard it uttered so much as I have most recently. And it's a, a way of saying, we will only look at new assets and top tier credits. Well, okay, what about the other 95% yeah, of the market?
0: Yeah. And I had a banker tell me the other day that they'll only finance a client who doesn't need it. So.
1: So, that's, okay. that, yeah, that's that's uh, yeah, absolutely,
0: <laughs> um, and that goes for the private banks as well. Or you're really talking more independent lessors. Uh,
1: it's certainly I, in my experience, it goes it goes for the private banks as well. Um, I think the private banks are particularly keen to do the business where it helps them either maintain an important relationship or get into a new relationship. Uh, it's typically been used as a as a as a spear, sort of a, as a hook type type of product, and and I've seen that uh, slow down quite
0: quite significantly. So, in other words, if you've already got the money sitting in account with the bank, they've already done their due diligence on you. And they know your accounts. It's much easier for them to to do the financing. One what one, one would hope, when- one would hope, and they can't say no, right? Or you'll pull your account and, and go to somebody else. Ah, uh, you, you you'd be surprised.
1: Um, and you know, very often
0: the because it's a it's a brutal market. I mean, they're all fighting over high net worth accounts at the moment. I mean Asia's sort of the, the hottest place for that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and but it's also, believe it or not, it's not always the case that the private bank with whom Mr. and Mrs. X has a substantial banking relationship will know, that they are purchasing an aircraft or, or they're or they're thinking about financing or refinancing their, their aircraft. Uh, you know, typically in the past, you had uh, a, a, a much more clear demarcation in the financing market as between the private banks and the asset based lenders and the sort of alternative products. Uh, and th- there was a very clear food chain. It would all it would usually start with the private banks and then kind of make its way down. Uh, talking for individuals uh, in, in in this market, it's certainly possible for the alternative sources of capital uh, and the likes of the, the the various lessors to 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 be in their sort of first.
0: So let's just shift a little bit and talk transactions. if That's all right. Sure. Uh, I know outside of uh, repossessions, you you probably the bulk of your business is actual just transactions right absolutely by activity yeah may not be as fun to do as repossessions not I'll as go. lucrative either I'll that, be not honest. as lucrative but uh but they pay the bills what are you seeing uh, in the market right now
1: so the bulk of the transactions that we've worked on in the past uh, year excluding uh, what we've acted for individuals and families or companies purchasing brand new aircraft from the oems which by the way still happens uh has been uh trading and that trading has typically seen uh, Asian, uh, most typically Chinese, sellers, and North American or Western, most typically American buyers.
0: And is that because of the economic situation in China or are people trading up to newer, bigger aircraft and selling their old aircraft? For the most part, the individuals that
1: we've represented who have been selling have not been trading up immediately. Uh, however, that's not to say that that, that they won't.
0: No, uh, I think everybody would probably agree with that. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly been a tough China market this year compared to, to the past. I, I believe there's
1: a good number of owners that have become very good clients of the charter companies now. Uh, and they will hopefully again become owners.
0: Outside of China, are you seeing a lot of activity?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the Middle East has, has been quite active for us. Um, Africa has, has always been a a particularly busy uh, place for us. We, but that's not to say there's been a lot of African transactions. It's just to say we, we, we happen to be on most of the ones that, that, that do get done. Um, not all of course, but it's interesting because, and I'm still active doing transactions domestically in the U S as well, believe it or not from, from Hong Kong. Uh, and there you domestic U S transactions are always much more straightforward than the international ones. And when you start getting American parties and international parties transacting with each other, there is always, not always, there is very often a, a gap in expectations, uh, whether it's, uh, it's, it's a cultural thing, but, but whether it's, um, you know, how, how a, a buyer, an American buyer expects a sale to go compared to what an Asian seller um, may be used to. Uh, And certainly uh, when you get uh, representatives of the Asian sellers uh, who really sort of shouldn't be representing the Asian sellers gets more complicated. Uh, Just in terms of the ease of transacting, as as the market has uh, in some senses slowed down in, a, in other in other senses, it's become uh, more difficult. The there really is no such thing as a straightforward transaction anymore. I don't think I've seen a straightforward transaction in at least four years.
0: And by that, you
1: mean multiple parties involved. You mean everything is difficult. The uh, there's very often a distressed element. Uh, there's very often uh, timing sensitivities. You have parties that maybe have not been paid. In, in in a long time uh you on top of that there's always a dynamic uh when you when you're talking about a trading transaction for example you know arguably it is it is a a buyer's market at the moment and so uh you have certain buyers that are sophisticated that are also very very aggressive uh with pricing and and terms uh, and it's it's very difficult to uh, simply it's it's much harder to do these deals today than it was in the past
0: well, i agree with that i'm saying it before a little bit but we we often see deals where you know 10 parties have to be paid out of escrow and you know everything from the law firm the management company the bank and five other suppliers that haven't been paid in a long time uh, and that they could all hold up a deal right they yeah. all want to be paid and so getting everybody onto the same page and the amounts agreed and everything before a deal can go through is, is yeah, it's sometimes shocking more complicated. Well, let me ask you about that. I mean, what is the the willingness these days of Asian buyers or sellers to hire outside counsel? It's always reluctant.
1: (laughs) Like everyone, I I always say that, uh, you know, and this is the age where, where, where everyone knows the cost of everything and the value of nothing uh so it is very often the case that where where they where outside counsel is is appointed or outside advisors are appointed uh they they tend to go with 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 the cheapest sort of game in town um and frankly there's a reason why why they're the cheapest game in town the transaction will be more complicated there will be a lot left on the table uh but it's difficult because if you're talking about a seller who is selling an aircraft uh particularly when there is an underlying uh, distress, then they are looking to maximize the the capital which they which which they walk away with, and and spending it on on attorneys is is not is not quite so high on their list of priorities.
0: Whenever one of our people is working on a, tra- a new transaction, first question I always ask is: Is there outside counsel involved? Because inevitably, if there is, I know it's got a good shot of moving smoothly. You know, it may not be easy, but it'll move. Whenever they tell me no, the general counsel's handing it or so and so's handling it. The next question is always, have they ever done a business jet deal before? And it's always no. And that to me is where you inevitably add a three month nightmare. Absolutely. You know, with just some general counsel and nothing against general counsel, by the way, but just who's never done an international jet deal, wants to prove themselves to the boss and starts marking up things that are considered. You know, standard course of business.
1: Yeah, uh, and look, th- this this is a craft. This is this is pretty much all I do, right? And, and I'm and I'm not alone. There, there are a number of other excellent uh, business jet focused attorneys around the world uh, who who have done hundreds of deals and have seen distress and have done repossessions and know the market. Uh, and so there, there's a reason why they are they are able to conclude transactions um, swiftly, efficiently, and favorably. Uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, you know, uh, very often there is a view that, that particularly, uh, lawyers are, are commoditized, but I'll be very honest with you. I'm, I'm very happy when I see a seasoned, competent brokerage involved as well. So, so one of my first questions is, is also like, you know, Is there other representations? I also ask who the management company is. And you can tell how difficult a transaction will be. (laughs) That is true too. You
0: really can tell. That is true too. Yeah, Yeah, oftentimes, and I don't wanna get too much into the stuff, but you have a management company that doesn't wanna lose the client. And so it's almost like the incentive for them is not to see anything happen or to only see something happen if it's going to be sold to somebody who's gonna keep the management with them. And if they're gonna lose the management, they just wipe their hands of it and it's just, it's your problem. And that does not work in an international jet deal. So how did you get into this? Uh,
1: very much by design, believe it or not. Oh,
0: okay. <laughs> Usually it's the opposite. No. They're going to this by all, accident.
1: If you find people that I, that I went to high school with and you ask them, what was Paul saying he would do when he grew, when he grows up, they would answer be an international aviation lawyer. I didn't even know what that was. Frankly, I don't even know what that is now. (laughs) Uh, My father was a pilot. My mother was a flight attendant. I always wanted to be a a pilot myself. I I did some flight training. I was looking forward to picking it back up um, one day. And uh, once I became an attorney, I decided to, to specialize. And so I naturally gravitated toward the aviation sector. And ultimately, I gravitated more and more toward the business jet sector as well. Um, this was at a time when doing business jet deals was looked down upon uh, by by big firm lawyers. Uh, and also at a time when doing, doing deals in emerging markets was, was looked down upon because, you know, it wasn't the flavor of the month. Of course, I took the opportunity and I started doing business jets in emerging markets. Uh, and now it's, it's uh, very much the, the flavor of the month.
0: I mean, I never even asked you this, but how did you wind up out here? To be to be very honest with you, uh,
1: I was in London uh, post Lehman. The law firm that I was with laid off, uh, I believe 75% of the associate class. Uh, I was of the 25% that remained. The firm happened to, at the same time, be opening an office in Hong Kong. And uh, my wife and I decided that this is the place that we wanted to be. This was at a point in time where the music really stopped in, in London and and it was amazing. It was it was almost overnight.
0: But this is two thousand and ten? Yeah,
1: yeah. I I've been here since two thousand and nine. So 2009. just about ten years. Ten
0: years. And
1: Pillsbury is happy about this? I haven't asked. <laughs> I like to just do things and then ask for We always say better to beg
0: forgiveness than ask for It permission. really is. Yeah. I've made, I've made a career out of that.
1: In fact, that's another podcast. <laughs> WWE. That is. That's, that's better that's, to those, beg those forgiveness stories,
0: dot com. Yeah. I begged for a lot of forgiveness in my time. Let's <laughs> put it that way. Um, it's going okay. Pillsbury, everything. Yeah, things are great. Yeah. You uh, you basically opened the office out here.
1: Yeah, opened it three years strong. It's been uh, three years. Yeah, the the market the market's changed quite significantly. I used to be just doing deals left, right, and center. Now I'm uh, doing deals, but the deals aren't they're they're acquisitions without financing, or I'm doing you know uh, debt recovery, litigation, uh, you know, really time intensive stuff. So um, I I I do miss those days, to be honest with you, because. It, it, life was easier to just <laughs> print, uh, copy, paste, print. Uh, but now it's, uh, you know, l- lawyers get paid to think. And uh, I've never had to think so much. In my well, career. and also
0: Clyde and Co. had a, you were used to be with Clyde and Co. Yeah, that's right. And Great they show. had, they had a big office out here. Yeah, that's right. But with Pillsbury, you really started it. It's the show.
1: There. Yeah. It's me and my associates. We have a uh, beautiful offices and we, uh, focus mostly on advising ultra high net worth individuals and their families and their business enterprises and uh, it's great because it's also brought me into contact with some of the most successful entrepreneurs in the world some some really great interesting people and uh, you know as I alluded to before in this time uh, given where the where the economy is you know I am seeing people lose their fortunes I'm seeing people, expand their fortune significantly. And I get to have a front row seat to all this. I mean, what a privilege it really is.
0: Uh, we, were, we were taking a break and Paul and I were just talking about the fact that nobody He was asking why we're doing this multimedia channel at Asian Sky Group. And I said, nobody reads anymore. And I, that's a Facts. big generalization, but you know, you were just saying it applies to emails as well. And now you you call people. <laughs>
1: yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, I'm I'm used to working for, uh, you know, ultra ultra wealthy individuals who, who are busy and they're they're billionaires running multi billion dollar enterprises. So I, I'm I'm used to keeping things short and brief. Uh, I, what I will say today is is I've noticed uh, the Twitter uh, Twitterization. Of, of, of legal and other advisory services. So very often, if I have a long email to write, I will do a couple of lines at top and I'll say, this is what the email is, this is the point, uh, read on if you want further details. It's important for us to have further details written, uh, but I just feel like the art of writing is
0: uh, disappearing. So it's fun, It's funny you said that because, you know, one of the things that uh, that we've been dealing with is just that it's become, it's become effectively rude to call somebody. Yeah. Right? So it's like somebody just calls me out of the blue. I'm like, why are you calling me? You know, just text me and then like tell me what you need or what you want to talk about. And if it's important, like we'll talk. But I agree with you. It's also gotten to the point where that just drags on and on and on. And it's so much easier actually just to call somebody, talk for two minutes, hit everything you want to talk about, and then you move on. When you're messaging, you sometimes just wind up in tangents for ten or fifteen minutes, and it actually is less productive.
1: Exactly. And uh, so first of all, I'm, I'm sorry for just calling you all the time, but but it's I, what I, I wasn't do. gonna I wasn't gonna mention <laughs> it, but uh. <laughs> but I will I will just pick up the phone. Uh, and, and I do spend more time on the phone today than I have ever in the past, which is interesting because earlier earlier on in my career, I spent a lot of time on the phone. And then it went through a period where people were just afraid to talk on the phone. And now I'm finding that because the the mind is no longer willing to read and is more willing to listen, I, it's a lot easier for me to talk to people. And unfortunately, I for people that I talk to, I do just pick up the phone and call them and I say, listen, I need two minutes of your time. And what I am good at, I will stick to that two minutes. I promise.
0: Clients people. should like that, right? It's more efficient. Just, you know, two minutes on the phone, five minutes on the phone. You don't need to build them for an hour writing, right? It is.
1: <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm privileged in many ways for my career, but one of them is that I've gotten to work with the most successful entrepreneurs in the world. And I've gotten to learn from a little bit from their, from their working styles. Right. I, I, I don't hang out with them all the time, but I have adapted my lawyering to, to fit their needs. And short, brief phone calls very often get get the job done. And obviously, everyone's got different preferences. Uh, I spend a lot of time on email. I also spend a lot of time on instant uh, chat uh, and voice recordings over instant chat as well. That happens. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's something I haven't I haven't embraced yet. But uh, that's a big thing in Asia. It is just leaving leaving
1: short voicemails over WhatsApp and and, and WeChat. WeChat. I
0: think part of that is just because it's so time consuming to send messages in Chinese characters that it's just so much easier to do thirty seconds and then blast it. But you walk around our office and you'll just see people like talking into their phone for thirty seconds. I said, what are you What are you doing? But yeah, it is more efficient.
1: And what's also interesting is now that everyone walks around with the electronic devices all the time, and people just take calls everywhere, you'd be amazed at the amount of information that that you can pick up just walking down the street. And I and, and I've become attuned to it because we are under ethical requirements to keep our stuff confidential and to protect our clients' confidentiality at all costs. Uh, you know, I, I I I've heard a lot of very interesting conversations on on the streets of Hong Kong, and I've may or may not have seen people's screens as they're sitting on the subway. You know, like, oh, that's an interesting.
0: Well, it's a good thing that we know you're, uh, as a lawyer, you're, you've got 100% confidentiality.
1: It's critical. Uh, the, the the one thing that, that separates the legal profession from most any other profession is our adherence to legal ethics. And uh, that, that uh, the best lawyers take it very seriously.
0: Do you, I mean, not to get too much into this, but it's something we've been dealing with a lot here. Do you worry about data protection for your clients?
1: Yes, absolutely. Our, our firm spends an incredible amount of time, money, and also a, a lot of uh, energy on uh, ensuring that our systems are are well protected. We get attempted attacks uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of times a day, and it's it's um, we deal with a lot of. Uh, I'm representing some very 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 well-known people yeah and Uh, they're
0: sharing things with you that they wouldn't share with absolutely
1: and so you know we're we're very well aware of the various for example we don't have wireless keyboards in our offices um because they can very easily be uh, intercepted and the keystrokes can be recorded um you know and there's all types of other uh steps that we've taken that i don't think was the norm years ago but at the end of the day all you can do is to try to put up as high enough a barrier to disincentivize people, or uh, make sure that that the, that the jokers at least can't get in. But if somebody's serious enough, then.
0: You're, but you also it, have to make. I mean, if you're a client, you have to make the assumption that the people that you're sharing your information with have that protection. Like I see clients here, not here, but as you see clients in general, emailing very sensitive stuff, just over Outlook, no problem to banks. Due diligence requests, here you go. You know, just sending very, very. At least they're using Outlook. Um, <laughs> well, maybe not. Maybe they're sending it over other things, but I just mean without any kind of questions of, you know, where is this data going to be held? How are you going to, you know, these are people, as you said earlier, they don't like to give out their confidential information, but here they are just emailing it or messaging it to people without asking how it's going to be stored, where it's going to be stored. Yeah. It's just sort of taken for granted. I'm sending it to a bank. It'll be fine.
1: And I have to tell you, um, now being mainly on the owner side the past few years, I've, I've, I've seen instances where there's been certainly lapses of banking secrecy best practices. Um, but I'm also interested when people just openly transmit sensitive data over WhatsApp and, and WeChat. So, for example, when I'm on WhatsApp and WeChat, nothing sensitive you know the the day-to-day minutiae absolutely but you want sensitive stuff it's going through our email servers and you'd be you'd be surprised a lot of people take exception to that and I'm I'm sorry but I'm not transacting over over weChat or whatsapp or Instagram whatever yeah no you know, I agree we, we, we you. have these systems I, in place for a reason I use agree. them I agree
0: with you uh, I appreciate you doing this, not the least of which because I know you've got another podcast coming out soon. So I tell do. us what that's about.
1: I uh, I decided to launch my own podcast because I uh, I'm just not busy enough. Apparently, uh, the podcast is called Words That Bind. Uh, www.wordsthatbind.com. Uh, the point there is uh, to lawyers, uh, contract law is both an art and a science, but to business people. Uh, contract law is often viewed as the exclusive domain of lawyers and otherwise unapproachable. So, what I decided to do was to launch a very informal podcast where, from time to time, I talk about contract law issues in a very practical way—not uh, uh, not just dealing with business aviation, but dealing with all types of general
0: contract law issues. So, uh, and words that it. bind is your page, or it's just, it's a legal site that people post on it's my page your personal page yes okay uh,
1: I think and I well, think we'll eventually put a link up to it Don't thank worry. you I think eventually I will get um, other lawyers to to come in on it as well but I just launched it I've got my first couple of episodes when so, when is it going live it is going live. it'll be live by the time this goes live so oh, okay good we, yeah
0: I hope we didn't step on anything not at all Paul Jabli thank you very much
1: my pleasure thanks for having me